2006, January 10th. Lecture number six, The Motions of the Stars, 2162, Winter Quarter, 2006, The Ohio State University, Richard Pogge. We'll start in just a moment. Start the recording here, and we'll be all set to go. Okay. Today we're going to be continuing our discussion of the observed properties of stars with motions of stars, but I wanted to begin with a quick finger exercise based on yesterday's lecture. Should be a pretty straightforward one. Yesterday we defined the parsec and the idea of stellar parallax as a way of measuring direct geometric distances to stars. So today's question is as follows. A star is a parallax of a tenth of an arc second, 0.1 arc seconds. What is the distance to this star? Is it A, a tenth of an astronomical unit, B, a tenth of a parsec, C, a ten astronomical units, D, ten parsecs, or E, one parsec? So take your pick, A, B, C, D, or E, just like you would on a on an in-class in quiz. Now that you've all had a chance, I hope to answer the question, discuss the question briefly with the people around you, and see if you can come to a consensus. And I'll give you about a minute or so to discuss that among yourselves. Okay, so the hubbub died down a little quicker than usual, which I kind of anticipated. This is a fairly straightforward one. How many of you changed your answer? So you show of hands as a result of talking about it. Okay, how many of you said the answer is A, a tenth of an astronomical unit? B, a tenth of a parsec? C, ten astronomical units? D, ten parsecs? Or E, one parsec? Good, I like seeing the show of hands. The answer is, other button, ten parsecs. Star with a distance of one arc second has a distance of one parsec. And the parallax formula is that distance is one over the parallax. A tenth of an arc second, one over a tenth, is ten. It's one of those fractions of a fraction things. So since you've got a parallax of a tenth of an arc second, smaller than an arc second, you know it must be more distant than a parsec. Smaller parallax, bigger distance. So one over a tenth is ten, and the answer will be ten parsecs. This again is an example of how what the usefulness of parsecs is. All I have to do is take the observable, the angle of parallax in arc seconds, invert it one over the parallax, and I immediately get the distance in parsecs. If I did this problem and I asked you for the distance in light years, you'd be in kind of trouble because you'd have to then remember that there are 3.26 light years per parsec. Yes, 3.2 light years per parsec. So you would have had to multiply by that. It would have been icky. Whereas this one with parsecs, just take one over a tenth, ten up, ten parsecs. So a very nice, straightforward, well, straightforward problem. I wouldn't go so far as to call it simple, perhaps, but you all did very well on it. Very nice. 
Now, yesterday we talked about parallax. That's the apparent motion of a star back and forth in reflex due to the fact that the Earth is moving around the Sun. All we're seeing is, the, we, we stand on the Earth, we think the Earth is stationary, and we see a nearby star wiggle back and forth because our perspective is wiggling back and forth. Just like when you put your thumb out and changed your eye from left eye to right eye, you saw your thumb appear to move back and forth, your thumb wasn't moving, it was being held still. It was your change of perspective across the base of a triangle. But we need to actually make an extra step. Do stars actually move not because of a reflex of the orbit of the Earth, but because they are actually moving through space? And the answer, of course, is yes. The stars are in constant motion. And we refer to today's lecture as going to be what those motions are and how we measure them. So the key idea is, is to come up with one basic idea, certainly, that stars are in constant motion. They only look fixed because those motions are very small in angle in the sky because we're so very far away from them. There are two kinds of observed motions. Observed meaning things I can go out and measure with a telescope in some way, either from the ground or from near Earth orbit. And these are the proper motion, the apparent angular motion across the plane of the sky, and the radial velocity, whether the object is moving towards or away from me. And we'll see how those are measured here in just a moment. However, what we, re we would really like to know is the true space motion. How is the object, the star, actually moving through space in three dimensions? We call that the true space motion, and it turns out to be a combination of three observables. The radial velocity, the proper motion, and the distance that we introduced yesterday. And why these true space motions are important to us will become clear towards the end of the lecture. So today we're going to unfix the fixed stars of antiquity and set them into motion and see how we measure those motions and what they can tell us about the nearby galaxy that we live in. So if you look up at the night sky, if you look up and walk out on a clear night, if we ever have one over the next couple days, you would see a sky looking somewhat like this. There's the Pleiades and the constellation of Orion down in here just coming up over the horizon. And you would ask, what are the, do these stars that we see tonight, the constellations that we see here in the 21st century, do they look a lot like they look like in the distant past? And the answer is yes. In fact, to a good approximation, the stars are where they were at the time that Claudius Ptolemy saw them or the time that Hipparchos saw them in the sky. So that at least on a human lifetime, the stars to the naked eye appear to be fixed in space. But this fixedness turns out to be an illusion. And it's an illusion due to the fact that the stars are very, very distant. They're much more distant, as we saw yesterday, than many hundreds of thousands or millions of astronomical units. So as a consequence, even though the stars are in constant motion all the time, that motion is so small in terms of the number of arc seconds per year that they move that we as humans can't see them with the naked eye. It takes a very, very long time for those motions to accumulate and become visible. So the trick is going to be how we measure these motions over time, even though they're so tiny. Now, the way we can describe these motions is as follows. We're going to be talking at this point in terms of observables. And so I'm going to break it down into the simplest motions, and then we'll increase the complexity until we get to the true three-dimensional space motion. But right now, I'm talking about things I can just observe. Proper motion is the apparent angular motion across the sky of a nearby star as seen with respect to the background of distant stars. The typical proper motion that I observe for nearby stars, stars that are visible to the naked eye, is pretty small. It's about of order a tenth of an arc second per year. Now remember, with the naked eye, 
with proper instruments and training, meaning if you're Tico Brahe, you can see angles of about two or three arc minutes. There are 60 seconds of arc per arc minute, so a tenth of an arc second, in order for that to build up to 30, to build up to three arc minutes, takes a very, very long time. It takes eight, 180 years. So observing night after night or even year after year within the normal lifespan of an adult, you're not going to see that motion on average. And so this is very, very difficult to observe. We have to have long baselines or a very, very accurate method. You're not going to see it with the naked eye. The largest proper motion of any star in the sky belongs to a little tiny red dwarf star called Barnard Star, which has the screaming proper motion of 10 and a quarter arc seconds per year. But even at that rate, in a century, it only moves a little, le- little more than two-thirds the diameter of the full moon. So even with something that's moving as fast as Barnard's star, you can barely see it. Now, what do I mean by apparent angular motion? Let's take this red star over here. It's going to stand in for us for Barnard's star. And let's say it's actually moving perpendicular to our line of sight. Then over some amount of time from its original position, which is shown by the dashed line here, up to its current position, it will have appeared to sweep through an angle. Now, I don't know its distance yet. All I know is I see the star there, and I see its angle sweep through this amount here with this green angle. I call that angle the proper motion, how much it appears to be moving across the sky in angle. The way of looking at this is proper motion is one component of the motion. It's the projection of the motion onto the plane of the sky. There's obviously it could be moving in depth, but if it's moving in depth, in or out, I don't see it move, meaning I don't see it move side to side. So this is the side to side component of the motion. And it's motion relative to the sun or to the earth, depending upon my perspective. We usually measure proper motions relative to the sun. So we'll see why in a moment. So this is proper motion. How much in angle does the star appear to be moving along the plane of the sky with respect to background stars? Now the all-time winner, as I said before, is Barnard's star. It's a little red dwarf star. And I've done a computer reconstruction here because it's easier to do this on a computer than with photographic plates because the plates are kind of icky looking, to tell you the truth. Here's where the stars are in 1902. Here's Barnard's star indicated with the red arrow. Fifty years later in 1952, it's moved up here. I've kept these background frame of stars the same. And by 2002, it's nearly moved off the frame. In that time, it's moved 100 years times 10 arc and a quarter arc seconds, or moved 1,025 arc seconds. That's less than a third of a degree. A degree is 3,600 arc seconds across. A third of a degree would be 1,200. So even in a century, Barnard's star, which is the all-time record holder, barely moves the diameter of the full moon, which is a half a degree. So this is probably the all-time winner. Now, let me set that in motion and show you what it actually looks like. Let's wait for quick time to come up here. There we go. So Barnard's, thank you. Barnard's star is down here. We're going to start in 1902, and then we're going to set it in motion. And you can see it moving with respect to the general background of stars. Now, if you look carefully, you'll notice the other stars are moving a little bit over that century as well. Part of that's a slight rotation because of the way the calculation was done. But if you look very carefully, you'll notice, for example, this star is moving a bit more, but Barnard's star clearly stands out. It's moving an awful lot across the sky. So Barnard's star has a large proper motion. Now notice because it's very distant, I can't tell 
whether it's moving towards me or away from me at the same time. All I can see is that component of the motion that's in the plane of the sky. Now, anyone bothered by this a little bit? Remember yesterday's lecture, we talked about parallax, the apparent back and forth motion of stars due to the rotation of the Earth. Doesn't this kind of mess up parallaxes a little bit? Because after all, we're looking for the back and forth motion due to the Earth's motion. Doesn't think this gets sort of screwed up a little bit because the star itself is actually moving through space. And the answer is, yeah, it actually makes it really complicated. Uh, amateur astronomer Dennis Sicho made a series of measurements using an 8-inch telescope and a little electronic camera from his backyard over the course of 1994 to 1996 of the position of Barnard's star. This is the position of Barnard's star in the celestial coordinate system. And if you were to zoom in with a magnifying glass on that mo century movie that I made in the previous slide, you would in fact see that Barnard's star is not moving along a straight line, but it's wiggling back and forth. The long motion is its motion through space. The back and forth wiggle is the fact that while it's moving on a straight line through space, the Earth is moving back and forth on its orbit. So what I actually observe from the frame of the Earth is a compound of two motions. The proper motion, its actual motion through space relative to the Sun, and then the Earth's motion relative to the Sun, which imposes itself as a parallax upon Barnard's star. Barnard's star is pretty close. In fact, it has a parallax of a little under an arc second. The parallax is the half angle here. Barnard's star, in round numbers, if I measured it here, the maximum parallax here is a little over an arc second. Then, uh, this total angle, parallax is half that angle, so it's a little over a half an arc second, which tells you that Barnard's star is about two parsecs away in round numbers. So we see, we actually, in practice, measuring parallaxes is complicated by proper motions. It smears out, if the Barnard star wasn't moving, its, proper, its parallax would simply be drawing a little ellipse there on the sky, which would just simply be the reflection of the Earth's motion. But instead, because it's moving along, that ellipse gets spread out. In fact, in some stars with very small proper motions, the motion looks like a little curlicue, a little spiral moving across the sky. It complicates things. This is why I don't measure parallaxes by measuring it in June and December with two points. I have to measure continuously over many years before I can get an accurate parallax because I have to simultaneously measure the proper motion. So in practice, life is difficult, but it's tractable, and we can do this for quite a number of stars. Proper motion even has a bigger advantage to us. Proper motion is cumulative, unlike parallax. Parallax is going to be back and forth and back again, assuming the star is stationary, and it simply reflects the size of the Earth's orbit. Since the size of the Earth's orbit is not changing, the parallax does not get bigger if I wait 10 or 100 or 1,000 years. But the proper motion, because it is cumulative, because it is physically the star moving, like me walking across the stage here, gets bigger and bigger. So as an example, let me get my little star, my little brown, little red dwarf star here. If I was standing still, parallax would just be the wiggle back and forth. But now if I'm moving... I put a proper motion on top of it. So parallax never gets any bigger, but proper motion accumulates time after year, year after year. Yes? Okay, so the purpose of the parallax is just to see how far the are? Right. Parallax gives you the distance of the star. Proper motion tells you how it's actually moving through space. 
So the longer you wait, the bigger the proper motion occurs. So let's say the proper motion was only a thousandth of an arc second per year. I can't measure angles of a thousandth of an arc second of a year from the ground. Wait a hundred years. Then it's a thousandth times a hundred. It's a tenth of an arc second, and I can measure that. So proper motions, you just simply wait over long time baselines. So this is how we measure proper motions. It's not a year-to-year -year annual thing. We have to take photographs of the sky or images of the sky over very long time baselines. The traditional way to do this was to actually start by photographing the entire sky, put those photographs in a vault, and then 20 to 50 years later, sometimes after the person who took those original photographs had died, their descendants take those plates out of the vault, re-photograph the sky with new plates, and compare the positions 50 years later. There was a great survey done in the beginning of the 20th century called the Cartesile. It was done by the Paris Observatory to photograph the entire sky around 1900. In 1950, that was 50, actually 54, 58, that was compared to a photograph set of the entire sky taken in the Palomar All-Sky Survey, as well as a number of other surveys taken by people like the U.S. Naval Observatory and so forth. Positions of stars are important for navigation references. So the United States Navy, the British Navy, and other navies actually have engaged in astronomy to measure the positions of stars to improve celestial navigation. So this is a, long, this is a generational problem. You have to wait a long time. But what's nice is you can accumulate the data and you can actually measure proper motions for far more stars than you can measure parallaxes for. For example, the Hipparchos satellite we saw yesterday measured parallaxes for about 100,000 stars. It measured proper motions for nearly 2 million stars because the proper motions could accumulate over the five-year mission of the Hipparchos satellite, whereas parallaxes is back and forth over the course of one year. So in five years, those proper motions had accumulated to the point that you could literally measure 20 times more stars in proper motion than you could in parallax. So nowadays what we do is instead of using background stars, because the precision is getting to the point that even those stars' motion becomes apparent, I go to very, very distant things like quasars and galaxies. Those are effectively fixed on the sky because they are millions and billions of parsecs away. And I use those as my reference of background and watch the stars of the Milky Way galaxy moving back and forth through the sky as a consequence of their actual motions through space you can see what we're doing. We're beginning to map out the galactic neighborhood in terms of their motions. We're watching the traffic patterns of the Milky Way. So here's an example of the accumulation of this. We take a star which has a proper motion of a tenth of an arc second per year. In one year, it moves about a tenth of an arc second. In 10 years, however, it would move a full arc second. So while I may not be able to measure a tenth of an arc second easily without special techniques, if I took a picture of the sky in 1990 and came back and re-photographed it in 2000, I would definitely see that star had moved by one arc second. And then, of course, after 100 years, it builds up to 10 arc seconds. So the motion of the stars is actually cumulative over long periods of time. But if I look at the patterns of the stars, I see with the naked eye. 10 arc seconds is still smaller than I can see with the human eye. It's about six times smaller than the human eye. So as a consequence, I have to wait many thousands of years before the pattern of constellations even begins to change due to proper motions. That's why people walk outside and see the scorpion of the constellation of Scorpius, and we have records of the scorpion constellation going back nearly 5,000 years. Because in 5,000 years, the stars that make up the constellation are so distant, their proper motions are tiny compared to what a human being can sense.
It's because of this that it took us a very long time to realize that the fixed stars were not fixed on the sky. And the discovery actually belongs to my, my, fav, my real hero in astronomy is Edmund Halley. He's one of the unsung heroes of astronomy. In the year 1718, he noticed that three very bright stars, which were important for celestial navigation in the winter sky, Sirius the dog star, Aldebaran, and Arcturus, had moved over the course of time when compared to the star charts given by Hipparchus in 300 BC. Hipparchus's star charts come to us by way of Claudius Ptolemy. Making measurements of the positions of these stars, which are important for navigation using modern telescopic techniques, Halley realized that they had moved significantly from where they should have been and was the person who discovered and first measured the proper motions of stars. Over the subsequent centuries, telescopes got better, measurement techniques got refined, and people began to measure more and more proper motions. Some of the proper motions of stars now have been tracked for nearly four centuries. But let's see what this looks like for familiar constellations. If we walk outside on a clear night, we would see the Big Dipper. Everyone recognizes the Big Dipper up at the north. It's easily visible from northern latitudes. This is what it looks like today. We'll just show you the brightest seven stars of the Dipper. If I was to look at it in detail, I would see that each of these stars is in fact in motion. The little green arrows I've drawn on here show you the proper motions of the stars that make up the main body of the Big Dipper. You'll notice curiously, One, two, three, four of these stars, five stars, are all moving in more or less the same direction. In fact, the Big Dipper is unusual. It's part of a moving group of stars that were all probably born together. But the star here in the end of the Big Dipper is barely moving, is moving in the opposite direction, as is the star up here in the tip of the bowl. One of your homework problems concerns the proper motions of this star over here. Now, this is what it looks like today in the year 2006. What did it look like in 50,000 B.C.? Well, if I project those actual motions backwards, I would find in 50,000 BC, it's kind of like a Big Dipper that someone sat on. It's been moved a bit because all of these stars, this is the motion now, so they've moved back. So I project these backwards. I project these, I'm sorry, project these to the right on the screen, project these stars here to the left, and say, where would it be about 50,000 years ago? So in 50,000 BC, the Big Dipper barely resembled a Big Dipper at all. In fact, I can use computers to project the motion over 100,000 years. And I see the Big Dipper as it appeared up here in the upper left 50,000 years ago today and what it will look like roughly 50,000 years into the future. Now, those are static pictures. Let's actually set this into motion. I'm going to show a movie which is constructed in a computer, which is starting out at 100,000 BC. So if you were a Paleolithic hunter in one of the Ice Ages looking up to the Big Dipper, this is what you would see. But what would it look like until 100,000 years in the future? So we'll just watch it here for a second. This is now moving into the, into towards 100,000 years. Now let's watch this again. What you first of all notice is that when you start looking over thousands of year timescales, each step of this movie is 1,000 years, the sky is swarming with stars. You can see one star Look down here towards the bottom. You can see there's this one star right here. They're just zipping along. Look at that guy. Some of these guys are cruising all over the place. Some are moving together. You can see the stars of the what's called the Ursa Major moving group all kind of drifting together. And you can see there's some fainter stars part of that group as well. But there's things buzzing up, buzzing down, buzzing left, buzzing right. This is 200,000 years of motion in the Big Dipper. And even then, there's an awful lot going on here. 
Now, beware of this for your homework assignment. I've done a little bit of cheat. I've actually recentered the constellation while doing this just to make it easy to see. So if we could look over very, very long, how should we say, time scales, 200,000 years is longer than recorded human history. Recorded human history is only 6,000 years. It's not surprising that the constellations of antiquity are still the constellations of the 21st century. Even though the stars are in constant motion, those motions are small on compared to human lifetimes. Now let's look at another aspect of proper motions, and that is that the proper motion actually does depend upon distance. We're going to give a more, it works in the direction that more distant stars will have a smaller proper motion. And the reason for that is very simple. It's simply an angular argument. We're going to take two stars here, an orange star and a red star, and they have identical proper motions perpendicular to my line of sight drawn by the dotted line here from the sun. So they move the same distance in the same time, but notice that the more distant star is a long, thin triangle across the same base compared to a triangle with the same base height, but it's shorter, it's closer. And so the proper motion angle, this angle on the inside, is much larger. In fact, the orange star is two times closer than the red star, and as a consequence, its proper motion is two times larger. So larger proper motion for two stars with the same speed in space, two times closer means two times bigger proper motion. A quick demonstration of that. We'll get my red dwarf out here. I want you all to hold your hands up so you can get your reference sort of using your fingers here. Use your right hand or your left hand, wherever you want to start. And hold your hands so that you block. So I'm going, to, I'm going to sweep it this direction. So you want to block off the star until you can just see it off the edge of one hand so that as I move it, it will appear on the other side. So hold your hands still. And the question is now, starting now, how far in fingers has that star moved? So I'll go from here, start your measurement, and now I'm going to move here, start your measurement. Okay, has everyone got a measurement in how many fingers it moved? Folks here in the front row, how many fingers did this star move across the sky? Five or six, Five or six fingers. Those of you up in the back, how far did it move? Who actually measured it back there? Three and a half up here. How about way in the back? Five? About two and a half or two. Yeah, these people are one, two, three, four, five. Now, the problem may have been if you had both eyes open, you get a little bit of parallax on top of that. So they should have seen about five fingers. You guys should have seen about one finger. But if you had both eyes open, that could turn out to be about two. Okay, maybe the people in the front row had fat fingers. Who knows? <laughs> but if you could all use, they had the same size finger, you can see the people in the front row closer to my red dwarf had a much bigger proper motion. But you were all looking at the same star. So proper motion is important for another reason. It's not just simply, a, ooh, which way is the constellation going to change over time? it actually can give us a slight clue to the distance of the star. And because proper motions are cumulative, it can give us a clue to the distance of a star that's too distant to measure with a parallax. So you've got your first introduction to an alternative geometric way of measuring the distances of stars using proper motion as one of the pieces. But it's not the only piece. Now it turns out because of this, we can measure proper motions accurate out to about 1,000 parsecs. 
We can only measure distances accurate out to about 100 or so parsecs, a few hundred parsecs with the parcos. The parcos can actually push it out almost to 10 kiloparsecs. So 1,000 parsecs is a good round number to work with. Further, you can measure proper motions further than you can measure parallaxes. So proper motions are important. They're kind of another way to make that distance go just a little bit further. But distance is only part of the effect. You can actually get fooled by proper motions. What if the star is moving exactly along the line of sight? So now I've got two stars with identical speeds through space. The first star moves across the line of sight. It has a big proper motion. The other star is moving straight towards us. The angle there is zero. So this star has no proper motion. So we can't just use the proper motion all by itself as a way to estimate distances, because I would look at this star and say, I see no proper motion. Hmm, must be very far away. Ooh, this star's got a big proper motion. Must be close. In fact, I've contrived this example. It's exactly the opposite. So appearances can be deceiving, because I've only got one part of the motion. If the motion is towards or away from me, I won't see any proper motion at all. It's like when I, when I was very young, I didn't actually live in California all my life. I grew up in the Midwest, and I lived in Kansas and Missouri for a while as a very young child, which was tornado zone. And one of the things we were always told is when you see a tornado, if it's moving and you see it moving, you're probably pretty good. If the tornado appears to be standing still, it's probably coming exactly towards you. Run. <laughs> or at least go for, go for cover. Same thing with stars. If it isn't moving, that doesn't mean uh, moving across your line of sight doesn't mean it isn't moving towards you. Now, how do we measure this motion towards or away from me? How do I get this other part of the motion? We call this motion the radial velocity. This is the projection of the true motion of the star along your line of sight. It's that part of the motion that's towards or away from me. And not surprisingly, because it's motion towards or away from me, I don't see any motion and angle on the sky but I would observe a Doppler shift. I can use the Doppler effect in light to measure the speed. So for example, let's look at these three stars. The yellow star down here is moving towards the Earth. Because it's moving towards us with a certain speed, I will see the lines in its spectrum shift to the blue. The amount of that shift is directly proportional to its speed relative to the speed of light. So I would look at that star and say, oh look, it's blue shifted by thus and such an amount. It's moving towards me at 10 kilometers per second. This star is moving away from the Earth at, say, 10 kilometers per second. If I looked at its spectrum, I would see its spectral lines shifted to redder wavelengths than they would be if it was standing still. And I would say, aha, it's moving away from me at 10 kilometers per second. But it doesn't work for this star here because it's moving side to side. It's not getting closer or further. So as a consequence, I look at the Doppler shift of that, I look at the spectrum of that star, and I see the lines exactly where they should be, neither redder nor bluer. So I know that this star has no motion towards or away from me and is totally moving to the side. I would see a proper motion for this star. Whereas the blue star, the star here on the left and the star here on the right, because this one's moving exactly towards me, I would see zero proper motion but a blue shift. This one I would see zero proper motion and a red shift. So in order to know the where the star is really moving through space, I've got to have at least two parts. It's 
apparent motion across my line of sight in the plane of the sky, which is the proper motion, and by measuring the Doppler shift of its spectrum, how much it's moving towards or away from me, which I call the radial velocity, because it's how much it moves along a radius connecting a circle which encompasses that star. Now, that's the two parts of the motion, but the object is not going to be so cooperative as to always be moving back and forth across the line of sight or always marching forwards and backwards along my line of sight. In reality, my motion is going to be in some more complicated angle in between. It's going to be a combination of motions which can be broken down into a leftward motion and a forward motion to get me to this point, which I see combined together into a true motion through space. So in order to measure the true motion through space, I'm going to break it up into these two components. So I've got the sun here and a star, and the star is moving in some random direction here with a true velocity. But I can see that that true velocity consists of two parts which are at right angles to each other. The component towards and away from me, which I call the radial velocity, v with a little r, and the component side to side in the plane of the sky, which I call the tangential velocity, v tangential, like it's a tangent to a sphere going through the star. I can draw the angles here. That tangential motion is what gives me the proper motion. That's how much angle it appears to sweep through here. And of course, this gives me now a triangle. And one leg of that triangle is the distance to that star. So I now have a triangle with the distance along one leg, an angle, a proper motion, and a radial velocity. What can I measure? Well, the me observables are the radial velocity, which I get how? Doppler shift. The proper motion, which I get how? How do I get, how do I measure proper motions? Proper motions are measured how? We just saw it. You take photographs of the sky year after year and watch it drift with respect to background stars. So it's an angle measurement. And then distance, oh, parallaxes. Let's say we got it close enough to measure parallax. So this is the geometry. It's a little bit more complicated than we've seen before. It's a bunch of interlocking triangles, but triangles are easy. This is simply geometry. So using all these pieces, the observables are the radial velocity from Doppler shift, the proper motion from watching it for many years and measuring the proper motion angle, and distance from, say, measuring the parallax. The result is I pick up these pieces. I get the radial velocity from Doppler shift. I get the tangential velocity, which I compute as basically being the proper motion and the distance. I solve the triangle. Here's the answer. I won't have you solve it. The velocity in kilometers per second is basically 4.74 times the proper motion in arc seconds per year and the distance in parsecs. You can see why I insist upon parsecs and kilometers per and arc seconds per year. This is how I translate it through a simple triangle formula into a kilometers per second. Radial velocity from Doppler shift gives me radial velocity in kilometers per second. Why do I need these two numbers? These two numbers which turn out to be related to, through the Pythagorean theorem, the true space velocity. So three observables are required. The radial motion in kilometers per second, the radial velocity from Doppler shifts, the proper motion in arc seconds per year, and the distance in parsecs measured through the parallax. So I need three observables to measure the true space motion. Well, that little triangle, I've plucked it out of that previous picture, 
it looks like this. There's a right angle between radial and tangential velocity. V, the yellow line, is the true space motion. That's just the Pythagorean theorem. The square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sums of the squares of the other two sides, because this is a right triangle, with the right angle here being between the components of the radial and tangential velocities. So I just write down hypotenuse is equal to side A squared plus side B squared. squared. So I get this formula when I bash it out, and I find that my space motion requires the radial velocity, the proper motion, and the distance measured in kilometers per second, arc seconds per year, and parsecs. So if I put all these pieces together, I can measure the true space motion. True space motions are pretty hard to measure. I can measure proper motions for about 2 million or so stars so far. I can measure parallaxes, in other words, distances, for about 200,000. Radial velocities turn out to be the sticky bit here. And they're sticky because I have to measure the stars one after another using a spectrometer. And it takes a very long time to build up enough spectra to measure the Doppler shift. And people do that. And we've measured true space velocities for a few thousands of stars over the last few years. And there are projects being ramped up to try to measure millions of radial velocities. You use a telescope with a spectrograph, and it's all it does year after year is just go bang, 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 bang to every star in the sky that has a measured proper motion in parallax and measures a radial velocity. What this gives us in the end is the true space motions. I actually map out the traffic patterns of the local Milky Way. So why do I care? Well, for an individual star, to be perfectly frank, I really don't. Right? How one particular star is moving doesn't tell me anything interesting, except maybe this warm academic glow that I get of saying, ooh, I measured the true space velocity of that star. But to actually ask some interesting scientific questions, I really have to look at large groups of stars. And I pick stars, for example, that are very similar in type, or maybe in particular parts of the sky that may be associated together. When I look at the properties of many stars together, many thousands of stars, I can ask some very interesting questions using the statistics of these motions. One of these is we actually can find out the fact that, you know, the sun is not sitting still. It's moving, too. How do I tell the motion of the sun through space? Well, one way is I look at, I'll see large-scale patterns in the proper motions. For example, I'll notice that in one part of the sky, I seem to be moving towards all those stars. And if I turn around 180 degrees, I'm moving away from those stars. So I'll see a systematic blue shift in one direction and a systematic red shift in the other. Am I just unlucky? Well, then I look in the direction of the systematic blue shift. I'm moving towards them. Go off to right angles and look at all the stars at right angles. Oh, look they tend to have proper motions moving backwards. So you know the sort of pictures of spaceships flying through space are common in science fiction where you see the stars all kind of doing this, kind of folding away you know, from the front of the Starship Enterprise or whatever. Well, that is in fact what you can measure for the sun. And you find that the sun is actually moving towards the constellation of Hercules at a few kilometers per second. You actually see the stars in front kind of systematically moving away and you turn around behind, and you kind of see the stars kind of systematically moving towards where you look like you're from. You get this perspective trick in the stars. But you have to look at many hundreds and thousands of stars before you can actually see that large-scale pattern because those stars themselves are moving of their own. So you have to kind of pick it apart from the traffic pattern. 
You can also tell the fact that the stars are not just simply randomly zipping in any direction like bees swarming around a hive. There is kind of a general trend that all of the stars in the sky tend to be moving in kind of the same direction in space. What is that general trend? We're 8,000 parsecs from the center of the Milky Way. The sun should be orbiting the gravity of the center of the Milky Way. I'll just jump ahead to explain something that we'll get later in the course. It takes approximately 200 million years for the sun to circle the Milky Way once on a roughly circular orbit. So it's almost hopeless to trace the sun's orbit out because 200 million years is way longer than dinosaurs were, were dead 200 million years ago. But we can see in the local patterning of stars a general space motion all in the same direction. That's all those stars feeling the gravity of the entire Milky Way of 200 billion stars all giving you the general sense of rotation and circulation around the center of the galaxy. It's small, but if you've been measuring the positions of stars for a century or more, you begin to see it. And we can find that, in fact, the Earth's circular speed around the center of our galaxy is about 200 kilometers per second. And we have to measure that in kind of a general circulation. Just like you can ask the question of if you're in traffic. The way to think about it is this way. If you're in traffic and you're all moving at, everybody drives at 65 exactly, right? Yeah. Everyone's traveling. You're stationary with respect to the stars. Some people drive faster. Grandma's driving a little slower. My grandma drove real fast, so it's not always that way. So you can look at the average speeds of stars around you, and you can tell whether you're turning a corner or whether you're going in a straight line if you watch enough cars and put together the common motions and the slight differences. And that's exactly the game we play. The other thing is remember that picture of the the movie of Ursa Major, of the Big Dipper. We watched all the stars buzzing along, and you notice some interesting things, like four or five of the stars of the Big Dipper were all moving together through space. Why? Why are five bright stars, which stand out from the others so much we've had this constellation for five millennia, moving through space together? Anybody got an idea? If you see a bunch of stars moving through space together, what might it tell you? Beg pardon? They form from the same object. They may have formed together. They remember how they were all moving when they formed. That's called a moving group. So I can see among the welter of stars, I can see relationships among stars that wouldn't otherwise be apparent. Those relationships may be family relationships in this case, which might give us important clues to how stars form together in the sky. I might also see stars like that star, like Barnard star is kind of not, so, not such a good example, but in the field of Milky, uh, the Big Dipper, remember that star that zipped across, different from everybody else, kind of stood out, was like, wow, that's moving fast. It's an oddball. In fact, we see stars, imagine you're not, let me think about this thing, imagine you're going down the freeway, you're in a, a 10 lane highway, and you're just cruising along, and everyone's doing about the same speed, some faster, some slower, but you're all going the same way, right? So you kind of all think you're all doing the same thing. You're all kind of related to each other. Well, what would happen if all of a sudden someone on a motorcycle is driving in exactly the opposite direction of traffic and weaving in and out in sort of a very exciting extreme sports fashion? They'd stand out, wouldn't they? You'd notice them. What is that interloper doing there? It isn't, this one is not like the others. So this is a way to spot oddball stars. Maybe that star doesn't come from the disk of the Milky Way. Maybe it comes from somewhere else. It'll move differently, huh? 
That's another way. There's thousands and millions of stars visible from the Earth. How do you find the oddball interesting ones? Their motions might be an important clue. And this is only going on. Proper motions is slow. It's tedious. It takes a century or more to get this data. People who dedicate their lives to this, they're called astrometrists, people who measure the sky, are really among the most patient people I've ever met. They start projects they know they're not going to finish after a career of 30 to 40 years. But they know that they're going to pass it on to the next generation and the generations after that to map together the sky. Gaia, Hipparchos, these expensive space missions, either done or planned, in addition to measuring parallaxes, also measure motions. They map out the traffic patterns of the nearby galaxy. It's slow, it's boring, and it's utterly fundamental to understanding such questions as the nature of evolution of populations of stars, the structure of our galaxy, and the sun's place within that galactic traffic pattern. So motions really matter. Any questions? All right, I'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs>